Good morning. Atchison, the town where I grew up, is a perfect Halloween town. For one thing, it is officially the most haunted town in Kansas. It contains seven official haunted houses, including Sally's House, the most haunted house in Kansas. Actually, I'm pretty sure that the committee, or whoever decides these things, must have been in a big hurry that day if they only came up with seven haunted houses. I'd have guessed a whole lot more. It is grand apple country, providing lots of apples for bobbing and coating with melted caramel. Some people even gave apples for trick-or-treat, but no kid I knew ever really approved of that use for any kind of fruit. It is prime garden and farmland, too, so we had truckloads of pumpkins to choose from to carve jack-o'-lanterns. Atchison is covered with trees, providing lots of leaves for decorating and jumping into and burning in bonfires. The many scenic areas back in the hills make perfect destinations for hayrack rides in the moonlight. One night every year in the week before Halloween, we had a big parade downtown with floats and bands, clowns throwing candy, and a queen with her court. Is it any wonder that we all look forward to this holiday? In the 50s, when I was growing up, we dressed up for trick-or-treating. The city even allowed two nights for that activity, although my mother, a notorious spoil sport, thought that one was God's own plenty, so we had to choose a night. We chose the first one, of course. We didn't want to risk the neighbors running out of candy. Yet this resulted in the embarrassing fact that I was in college before I actually studied the calendar closely enough to realize that Halloween isn't on October 30th. My sister and I always went to Kresge's, the local dime store, to pick a mask apiece from a big bin. Back home, we put together the rest of our costume using cast-off clothing, jewelry, and hats from our dress-up box. Many other children had store-bought costumes, witches, ghosts and skeletons, gypsies, fairy princesses, and clowns. Invariably, some ornery little boy would wear a devil suit, all red with pointy horns and a pitchfork tail, and everyone would be amused by this appropriate choice. Our classrooms were decorated with jack-o'-lanterns, black cats, witches, ghosts, bats, and skeletons, and I bet many of yours were too. Our good friend Eva Culver, a librarian at Wilson School for many years, wore a witch costume to school on Halloween, and that reminds me of a good Eva story. Halloween night, Eva would stay in costume and sit on her front porch in a chair under her porch light, holding a bowl of candy in her lap. Children from her school would come to get candy and hugs. One evening it was getting late when two boys, about 11 or 12, appeared, who hadn't gone to Wilson School and didn't know Eva. She sat very still, staring straight ahead. The boys stopped at the bottom of the stairs, trying to decide whether she was a real person or a mannequin or what. They came to the conclusion she wasn't real, 
So one boy said, cool, we can take all the candy we want. He bounced up the steps, reached into the bowl, and grabbed a huge handful of candy. Quick as a flash, Eva caught his wrist and held on until he let loose of the candy, all while continuing to stare straight ahead and not say a word. The other boy, who had been about to reach into the bowl, too, stopped, looked at Eva with big eyes, and said, Uh, I don't believe I want any candy. <laughs> the two of them half fell, half ran down the steps, disappearing into the night, leaving behind a witch pretty pleased with herself. But one year, Eva didn't wear her witch outfit to school. Classrooms started being decorated with faceless pumpkins, leaves, and grapes. Children stopped dressing up as devils and skeletons, stopped going trick-or-treating, stopped reading stories about witches, and singing songs about ghosts and goblins. Instead, they dressed up as their favorite vegetable, went trunk-or-treating in church parking lots, and celebrated the autumnal equinox instead of Halloween. What happened? And was it wrong? As in the case of so many social phenomena, there probably isn't one easy answer. I'm sure that one part of the equation was a wave of what has been labeled political correctness that swept the country in the 70s. It was a sort of general raising of consciousness, an awareness of the stereotypical images the generalizations, and the thoughtlessness that made up too much of the attitudes of the majority of people towards minorities. The civil rights movement, the women's movement, the Native American rights movement, and the like were behind it. All in all, a great good thing. But we Americans often have a tendency to overdo, to go a step too far. So while it was way past time, stop the ugly practice of blackface comedy routines because of how demeaning it was to African Americans, we also stopped children from dressing up like hobos, deeming it an insult to the poor. Little girls couldn't be gypsy fortune tellers anymore because it was stereotyping Romany people. Clowns were scary to some small children, and so it went. Another part of the reason for the demise of my idyllic 50s Halloween has to be the media. An article I read in Parade, or one of those news magazines, suggested that a horror movie entitled Halloween, which came out in the mid-70s, began a series of movies that identified Halloween with the occult and horror. Before that, Halloween was supposed to be scary, of course, but more the innocent kind of scary, where everyone really knows deep down it's all in good fun, with nothing to be afraid of. The movies shifted the emphasis to the dark side, so we moved from the possibility of being a little scared to being terrified. No one wants that for small children. But the main objection to Halloween, as we used to know it, came from Christian conservatives, and I'm not sure when it started. We had plenty of Christian fundamentalists in Atchison, yet I don't remember anyone's parents objecting to their children drawing witches with warts on their noses 
or cutting cats out of black construction paper. Perhaps it was the horror movies that got people thinking about Black Sabbaths and witches who made pacts with the devil. Perhaps it was because something caused a surge of interest in witchcraft and the occult among high school and college students, a sad development and reason for concern among God-loving people. Perhaps it was these concerns, coupled with the misreading of the Bible. The King James Version translated a Hebrew word witch or witchcraft in the Old Testament and a Greek word bewitched in the New Testament. Witch or witchcraft or bewitched actually are inaccurate translations for these words since the concept of witches as we know them didn't develop until the Middle Ages. The Hebrew word translated witch or witchcraft in the Old Testament means to practice the magical arts or a diviner. The Greek word for bewitched is more literally translated amazed and can but need not have an occult reference. But it has nothing to do with witches as we conceive of them today. By pointing out that witches are not mentioned in the Bible, I don't mean to suggest that they are therefore innocuous. Witchcraft is nasty, ugly business. The Anglo-Saxon word Wicca originally was masculine, but by the 13th century it had come to denote a woman who was serving Satan and with his aid was causing bad things to happen to people and animals. This is anathema to Christians who know that Satan is pure evil and sin. But how much originally did witches and Satan really have to do with Halloween? The word itself comes from a corruption of the phrase All Hallows' Eve. The Roman Catholic Church celebrates All Saints' Day, or All Hallows' Day, to honor their whole crew of saints on November 1st. Halloween festivities, however, started much earlier with the Celts in Ireland, perhaps as early as the 5th century BC. October 31st was the end of summer in their calendar. They celebrated with a holiday called Samhain, sort of a New Year's Eve party. It also was a day when the Celts believed that the veil between the living and the dead was thinnest, so the spirits of anyone who had died the past year could roam in search of living bodies to possess for the next year. All laws of time and space were suspended for that one night. Naturally, the Celts did not want such a thing to happen to them, so they doused the fires in their homes to make them cold and undesirable, and they dressed up in ghoulish costumes and ran about doing outlandish things to make themselves so scary that the spirits would be frightened away. The Romans who came along a little later adopted this Celtic custom and added some of their own, especially the tradition of honoring Pomona, the goddess of fruit and trees. Her symbol was the apple, hence bobbing for apples and decorating with leaves. Trick-or-treating appears to have its origin around 900 AD in a Roman Catholic church custom called souling. On November 2nd, All Souls Day, a day to honor all the dead and not just saints, poor Christians in Europe would walk from village to village begging for soul cakes, which were pieces of bread with currants. 
In exchange for these treats, the beggars would promise to offer up prayers for the souls of the dead relatives of the donors, because the more prayers the deceased received, the quicker their souls would go to heaven. The story of the jack-o'-lantern comes from Irish folklore and does involve Satan. A man named Jack, who was a bit of a scoundrel and a rascal, tricked the devil into climbing a tree. Then Jack quickly carved a cross into the trunk of the tree, thereby trapping the devil, who couldn't climb down past the cross. Jack wouldn't let the devil come down until he promised not to tempt Jack anymore. When Jack died, he was refused entrance to heaven because he had been a scoundrel. But he was also refused entrance to hell because he had tricked the devil. His soul was condemned to wander through the frigid, dark netherworld. Satan did give him an ember, which he carries in a carved-out turnip, Jack's lantern. When the Irish started immigrating to the United States, they brought their custom of celebrating Halloween with them, although they quickly switched to pumpkins instead of turnips for their Jack's lanterns, perhaps because they noticed that pumpkin pie tastes much better than turnip pie. <laughs> so Halloween, as we knew it in the 50s, had nothing to do with Satan worship or witches' covens. It was an amalgam of Celtic customs and folklore, Roman and Greek mythology and holidays, Roman Catholic religious days and practices, and good old American commercialism. Since the origin of Halloween turns out to have been something reasonably benign, does that mean that celebrating Halloween today is an okay thing to do? Not necessarily. It would be erroneous to assume that the origin of something is indicative of how it is practiced today. For example, hunting for eggs in the early spring originated as part of the worship of the Germanic fertility goddess Istra, from whose name we get our word Easter. But this doesn't mean that children hunting for Easter eggs in our own time are engaged in fertility worship or have ever heard of Istra. No. What children in our own time are doing is celebrating the resurrection of our Lord. Obviously, it's the present intent and not the historical origin of a practice that counts. So it would be fallacious to argue, argue either one way or the other from the origins of Halloween practices to whether girls dressed up like witches are promoting or encouraging witchcraft. Here, too, the origin of a concept and its present meaning can be very different. Eva didn't believe that witches were real, or she would never have dressed up like one. And it could be that the very act of turning witches and ghosts and vampires into children's play is to assign them to their proper place. Fairy tales. Stories for children. My own decision about Halloween is that it is basically harmless. A thing to have fun with and not take too seriously. But I realize that my judgment may be a little clouded by the misty, sentimental memories of my own childhood and of, excuse me, my children who also enjoyed Halloween. If you disagree with me, I won't argue. But there is one thing that I've touched on in this sermon that we won't disagree about, and that is that Satan is real 
and that sin is real, and that they are truly terrifying. It is unlikely that Satan has pointy horns, a tail, and a red wardrobe. He is much, much more frightening than that. He is everything wicked, everything cruel, everything vicious, everything ugly, all rolled into one. He is not just a little bit ornery, and he is no joke. He is greed and sloth and disease and pestilence. He is drought and famine and despair. He ingratiates himself into our lives on a minute-by-minute basis, infiltrating every fiber of our being. He is sin, and sin is real, unadulterated horror. If it were up to Satan, we'd all be lost. Fortunately, it isn't all up to Satan. God sent us Jesus to show us how to live a perfect life, and he gave us his promise of salvation if we believed and tried to live that life. So it is up to us. One entity in the panoply of evil creatures that people have dreamed up to personify sin is the goblin. Goblins are vile, wicked little things that play mean tricks. We, I'm afraid, have many goblins living and working among us today. Let's examine a few, limiting ourselves to ones that involve children. Did you know that in the United States today, one in every ten children goes to bed hungry? That nearly 13 million children in our own country are malnourished or hungry every year. Not many children die of starvation in the United States, but around the world, 45 million children suffer from wasting hunger every year. Too many of them will die. Globally, 850 million people suffer from food insecurity. Yet, people in the United States waste 41 billion pounds of food yearly. Everything from stale crackers and spoiled fruit to truckloads of prepared restaurant food that goes uneaten. Adding insult to goblins, the world can produce enough food to feed everybody, but conflict and climate change and COVID have upset the natural pattern of production and distribution. We have to do better. Or let's look for goblins in another direction. Every year in the United States, 4.5 million children are afflicted with opioid abuse. Every 25 minutes, a baby is born suffering from opioid withdrawal. Another devastating statistic. One in every 10 children will be sexually abused sometime in their first 18 years. Yet another sobering fact, 12.9 million families in the United States are headed by a single parent. This involves one-fourth of our nation's children and is the highest average among the developed nations. Globally, one-fourth to one-third of all families are single-parent homes headed usually by a mother. Yet another area to find goblins is the field of education. Can you believe that 25% of students 
eligible to graduate from high school in our country don't make it. That is 7,000 students a day dropping out of school. So many of these children are setting themselves up for lives of poverty and wasted potential. We could go on rousting out goblins, but you get the picture. It's the worst kind of horror story that I could have come up with for our Halloween or for any other day, because it is true. Jesus has made clear to us our obligations to our fellow men. We are to be Jesus to everyone we meet, and we are to treat everyone as if they were Jesus too. As we heard before in Matthew 23, 23-24, we read his admonition to the Pharisees. You are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. Blind guides, you strain your water so that you won't accidentally swallow a gnat, but you swallow a camel. Sometimes I'm afraid we look to the rest of the world as if we are counting cumin seeds while our neighbors are suffering. We're too busy removing books about witches from school libraries to notice that children are dying from abuse and neglect and preventable childhood diseases. We're self-righteously hanging out in church parking lots wearing our vegetable suits, and the world is watching us straining our soup for gnats while swallowing goblins. Satan runs rampant in this world, creating terrible wrongs. People are suffering and people are dying, many of them without an opportunity to know our Lord. We have been given a clear-cut command, both to spread the gospel and to care for anyone in need. It's a big job. Superhero costumes are optional. I'd like to close by reading a portion of the poem from which I got the theme for my sermon today. It's by James Whitcomb Riley, entitled Little Orphaned Annie. I'm leaving out the graphic parts about what happens to children who don't say their prayers and who sass their elders. Little Orphaned Annie. Inscribed with all faith and affection to all the little children, the happy ones and sad ones, the sober and the silent ones, the boisterous and glad ones, the good ones, yes, the good ones too, and all the lovely bad ones. Little orphaned Annie's come to our house to stay and wash the cups and saucers up and brush the crumbs away and shoo the chickens off the porch and dust the hearth and sweep and make the fire and bake the bread and earn her board and keep. And all us other children when the supper things is done we set around the kitchen fire and has the mostest fun, a listening to the witch tales that Annie tells about, and the goblins that get you if you don't watch out. And little orphan Annie says, when the blaze is blue, and the lamp sputters and the wind goes, Ooh, and you hear the crickets quit, and the moon is gray, and the lightning bugs and dew is all squenched away. You better mind your parents and your teachers fond and dear and cherish them that loves you and dry the orphan's tear 
and help the poor and needy ones at clusters all about where the goblins will get you if you don't watch out. You've been listening to Joanne Trammell at Hayes Christian Church. Hayes Christian Church is a non-denominational fellowship in Hayes, Kansas. We are supported by the generosity of our members, attenders, and friends. The financial support we raise goes to projects which further spread the gospel to those who do not yet know Jesus, those local, national, and international missions, and they help to keep those podcasts free. If you'd like to share a monetary gift with us, please visit our webpage at hayeschristianchurch.org and click on the Donate button, or you may mail your gift to P.O. Box 1111, Hayes, Kansas, 67601. If you have questions, comments, or would like more information, we would love to hear from you. Simply go to our webpage and click on the Contact Us form. Thank you for your generosity, and may God bless you as you seek to follow Him.